to the Influence Factory podcast. This program is dedicated to support professionals who have a desire to develop their digital business influence so they can navigate through a fast-paced, constantly growing digital world. We invite newcomers as well as our family of business influencers to a place to play, share ideas, questions, tips, and guidance with other thought leaders around the globe. Sit back and enjoy our program with your host, Dean Delisle, as he interviews guests. News and commentary are provided by Jackson Delisle and Monica Hacker. Power Move lessons are provided by the Influencer Marketing Department at Social Jack. And production, editing, and distribution is provided by the Social Jack production team. Today's show is brought to you by Planable. Planable Planable.io gives your social media team everything they need to really move their creative process forward. It allows you to preview social media posts as they are live, real time. No more screenshots, mock-ups, spreadsheets. Your clients can review content from within the platform. And do you have anything to say about it, Monica? It's a great platform. We've been using it now for a month. I love it. Um, it's a game changer in the content world. I highly suggest it. Yeah, go to Planable, P-L-A-N-A-B-L-E.io to start your free trial today. All right, everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Influence Factory. This week's guest is Tom Yorton. He is founder and CEO of Shine Advisors. He advises successful growth-minded executives and teams on their leadership communication and specializes in helping quiet leaders connect powerfully their way. A former officer of two Fortune 100 companies and CEO of Second City Works of improv comedy fame uh, that we've talked about often on this show, Tom knows the rules of business communication and delights in breaking them whenever possible. And that's why we get along because I'm a rule breaker. He's the (laughs) co-author of Yes And, a leadership communication book that applies the principles of improvisation to business communication, which we're going to talk a little bit about today. So how are you doing, Tom? Outstanding, Dean. How are you doing? Yeah, good to have you on. Yeah, it's uh, these are strange times, and it's it's actually fun to have this conversation. There's a uh, man, what a bunch of broken field running we're going through right now, huh? <laughs> However you want to look, <laughs> breaking good or breaking bad. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so you had um, you know it was funny because uh, you and I talked about. Um, you know, and I know you were a former drummer, and so was I. I was I, I always said I was a bad garage band drummer, and it started early on uh, with a really bad drum kit, and then it, it climbed from there, but never really went anywhere. But it was always, I think, you know, you have that little rule breaker part about you, and I think a lot of drummers are rule breakers. I'm just curious on your comment about that. So Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's interesting. I, I think my life and my career has been a series of happy accidents. Uh, you know, you have, you have a plan and then life intervenes. And uh, for me, this latest twist that we're all living through right now is a little bit more jarring than most, but at the same time, it, it kind of underscores what I've known my whole life is that, you know, that business life, whatever is kind of an act of improvisation. I thought that before I worked at second city, but um, I certainly, even more so, I think we're living that right now. And so none of that is foreign to me, I guess, as a musician, you know, you're around people who are, uh, you know, very expressive, they don't mind saying what they think, typically. Um, so there's a little bit of that rebel, sometimes with a cause, sometimes without a cause. Uh, but there's also just, you know, from a music standpoint, there's a, there's the idea of, uh, you know, kind of making it up as you go along too, and, and improvising. So I, I think that's always been a 
looking back, that's kind of been a connective thread in my whole life. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, with that being said, so so maybe take us back a little bit and tell us, you know, how the adventure started. And, you know, a lot of times we're inspired uh, by early on by either our parents or I, you know, had had that on and off in my life and grandparents. And so uh, we have different adventures and journeys that begin to mold who we become. So I'm sort of curious how you see yourself uh, as little Tom and then how you progressed into big Tom, if you could. That's a great question. I, I love, and I also, it's kind of opportune because I think about some of the work that I do with clients and I talk about, you can't be an original communicator if you don't understand your origin story yeah. and what is your origin and do you walk away from your origins or do you find a way to make that part of who you are? And I've always really embraced it. I'm a blue collar kid. I'm from Kenosha, Wisconsin. My dad was an electrician. My mom was a nurse, um, retired. Um, they're still both living in the house that I grew up in. Wow. And so, you know, kind of lived in a rust belt town in the seventies. And if you have been in that situation, it was not a, it was not a great situation. Now I kind of flash forward now to look at Kenosha, Wisconsin, what 50 years later, 45 years later, whatever they won the geographic lottery in the sense that they're in between Chicago and Milwaukee on the lakefront. And if that town, that rust bucket town would have been somewhere in the middle and, you know, away from those things, it would be a very different outcome. But yeah. that, that, that shaped my, definitely shaped my, point of view. I always worked. My parents always believed in working. I had a paper what was route. your first job? Oh, paper route? Nine years old. Same yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so did you, it, did it, you pedal in the snow and everything? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, if I have to be, I don't want to inflate my resume here. So if I want to be, <laughs> to be really true, uh, I was at nine years old, I was a substitute for the kid across the street who was a few years older. And when he didn't feel like doing it, he gave it to me, usually in those lousy days. Uh, he was outsourcing. He was outsourcing. That's, right. <laughs> That's how that all worked. So that, that, was, uh, that was my first gig. When I was 14, I worked in a sheet metal shop as kind of a errand runner, janitor, cleanup boy, whatever you want to call it. I ripped out furnaces. I did all that kind of stuff in the summer. So it just kind of, oh, and also he learned how to drink and swear. Um, uh, so <laughs> this is funny. I, I don't know if I should say this, but you know. Yeah, go for at, it, man. At 15 years old, it was funny. We would, we'd work in the morning. We'd go to some, in Kenosha, three out of four corners have a bar on them, a little shot in a beer bar. And you'd grab a sandwich and have a beer or two. And I was 15 years old doing that. It's kind of just kind of the way it went. Um, but just always willing to work and not minding to do dirty work. Uh, I think if those are that my parents modeled that. And even today, I was talking to my mom about the craziness we're living through with this coronavirus. And um, she's really practical about it and just doing what you need to do to get to the other side. And it's not always what you want to do, um, but it's what needs to be done. And Man, I went down a tangent with all that, didn't I? Yeah, no, no, that's good. And I was, I was co-voyaging because I, you know, I, I was on the other side of the lake in Gary, Indiana, you know, kicking it off. Blue collar, same thing, and um, had the paper route. That's why I was smiling and drumming, right? So, and uh, and my dad was always a salesman, so that, so that sort of got my in my blood. But the the funny thing is that first job, uh, mine was bussing tables in a B two B restaurant. And there too was like introduced to drinking and things like that. You know, you know, it's like my first scotch was when somebody didn't want it and I never had it. And they were just like, 
the bartender, I'm sure he was messing with me and I didn't want to make a face, but I, I swear I was maybe 15, 16. And then I was like, wow, okay. So after the first four sips, you know, after the burn goes away, it was actually okay. But was I, was, ca- I was, it was your Caddyshack moment. You just stealing yeah. drinks at the party. <laughs> I wasn't stealing, but they were, uh, I think they just wanted to see what kind of reaction it was. That's great. Yeah. No, it's, it, it, and right. How much of the stuff that you it, it goes to show you what you really learn in life and what you learn in work and what you learn is way more than what the job description's about. Yeah. Yeah. And all my, I was, I was sort of toyed too. I don't know if you, you know, we always have these, these forks in the road um, where I had all my buddies getting wads of cash from working in the steel mill, blue collar. But then mm-hmm. I was, I was working and then going to school at night. And so, so maybe take us through like your adventure of like saying, you know, I could have went this way, but I went this way. And maybe some things that happened, you know, as part of that pathway. Wow. These are really good uh, questions. And by the way, it reminds me of the Yogi Berra line. Uh, when you come to a fork in the road, take it, um, which is outstanding. Uh, no, the, uh, so I think my first big fork was when I was leaving to go to college. I went to University of Wisconsin in Madison. And at that point, I was thinking, do I want to be a musician do I want to go down? Because do I, do I major in it? Do I do I trust myself as a performer that I can actually make a living at it, or do I want to be an educator? Because those were the those were the paths if you were doing that. And I chickened out. I said, "No, nah, I don't think I'm good enough," or I didn't believe in myself enough. Kind of interesting thing, right? Yeah. And so I, I said, "I'm a creative guy. I want to stay in some semblance of creativity, but I want the auspices of a business career. So what does that?" And at the time, I uh, so I ended up majoring in journalism advertising at the University of Wisconsin, and I felt like that was a good combination. There was a creative outlet to it, but yet it was it was business, and it felt like and this was what year? This was early. So I graduated in '85. So this is probably '83, '84 ish. Yeah, kind so of time it was beyond frame. Mad Men, but ads, advertising was still big. So it, well, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was a very different business than it is today. I don't even recognize right. it anymore. Um, but uh, so that that was the first big fork in the road, and it's kind of funny that you make this two degree turn. That seventeen, eighteen years later, you find, wow, I'm sixty four thousand miles away from where I want to be. How to that's basic trigonometry or something, right? That's how that works right? for geometry. Yeah. You can tell I'm not a math major. Yeah, um, but it is no, seriously, it's like I made that decision and I had a really great career. My first career was as an ad guy. I was an account guy at agencies like Ogilvy and Riney and Gray and in different cities, Chicago, Minneapolis, San Francisco. Wow. I had a great run. Uh, I was a marketing VP uh, for the automotive group of Sears, who was a client of mine. For five years, I had, when, Sears, I had Sears too. Uh, I was helping them with call centers and more uh, technical. I call it technical marketing, but inbound, outbound stuff. But um, but boy, what a different world for us both to say Sears was a big client for us, and and now look where they're at. You know, it's just a whole different world. Yeah, it was funny. I looked at this in in, in 1995 or 96. Sears is a Fortune nine company. Yeah, right. So for to the modern ear, that sounds absolutely bizarre, but it also is um, what's past is prologue. So for all of the, you know, the companies that are flexing right now, I think uh, it wasn't a Jeff Bezos who said, hey, most companies have about a 35 year lifespan. Yeah. So for all the companies that are flexing hard right now and look with amusement at companies like Sears, it's like you can become that. Yeah. <laughs> that, well, that, and- it, that happens. 
Yeah, I was just playing back too, thinking about like your GEs and I was tied heavily to tech, which was IBM. I was at Merrill Lynch. And I think about those and and of all the companies that I was working with back then, it's pretty much the ones that are most solid. I mean, we still work with GE, but but it's like, you know, they've had to change. IBM obviously has morphed, you know, with Watson and everything else. So it's almost like if, if the ones that continue to innovate and innovate and innovate and 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 work them their way in there. Did you see that same thing from like Ogilvy and that whole world too? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and I think that was definitely kind of an experience like at Ogilvy. It was really understanding what brands are all about and becoming a disciplined brand person and doing that for brands like American Express and Die Hard and Craftsman and really understanding how you create something that lasts a long time and, uh, and, and can be powerful and can withstand goofiness like we're living through right now. But you also understand in those worlds, you have to, you have to learn how to be nimble and adaptive. And again, the agency business today is so wildly different than the one I grew up in. So, and, and it's for companies like, like, I guess Ogilvy, it's, it's a tribute that they're able to make those pivots and turns and keep up with it. So some do and some don't. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Um, so, uh, so I have to ask because we're jumping quick into the the you know the future here. Um, you had mentioned to me that um, uh, best days are outdoors in the mountains. Is that is that from a Wisconsin place, or or was that like all of a sudden it's just always been part of you, or, or where does that come from? I think it's always been part of me, but unrecognized. Um, and so, yeah, I, it's not like I lived in the outdoors in Wisconsin. I mean, there's Northern Wisconsin and there's Kenosha and a factory town. So it wasn't like I was camping every weekend or any of that kind of thing. But, you know, the first few times I went to Colorado, it's like, oh, wait a minute, this is a life that I was always supposed to lead, but didn't. Um, And so I have friends out there and just the more time that I spend there, the more it just, and I think, well, I think too, some of it was in most of my early career, the first 20 years, I was in big cities and in the heart of big cities. And I love the pulse and the energy. And that was very validating to me as, as a kid with the roots that I described, it felt like I had arrived, right? I'd made it. I was big time. And funny thing happens, you do that for 20 years or so and you go, okay, cool. That's great. And maybe there's something else out there in the world. And as I discovered more in the second half, I think in the last 20 years or so, I just spent more time appreciating outdoors, appreciating nature, being in it, and I find that it really helps my thinking and it just, I'm a better person when I'm in it and I'm not so jacked and not so short fused. Yeah, it's, it's great. I, I really appreciate you saying that. So I grew up around the dunes and the beach. That was our thing around Northwest Indiana. And then when I moved to the city, it was funny. I was like still craving something. So we would make these regular pilgrimages to um, up to Devil's Lake, Wisconsin, and we would climb the bluffs. And I would just, yeah. I just felt like I was in the mountains, even yeah. though it was just a bluff, but it felt rugged and cool. And it just, I, I was almost addicted to that. I mean, camping in tents and stuff like that oh yeah no it's it's great it's it's i I wish i was doing it more and and maybe that's what the future holds for me we'll see uh um but it's i have a son who lives in boulder and went to school out there and so we live vicariously through him there you go Uh, yeah that's a good place to to do some hiking and other things too for outdoors for sure um 
so so in that so then uh you also uh mentioned uh that you love to cook so is it indoor outdoor or anything i'll be more indoor i i i'm supposed to be i'm, I'm a guy so i'm supposed to be good at barbecuing i don't know that i am <laughs> um i think i can do one or two things and then i kind of just i'm johnny one note on the grill um <laughs> but uh uh no nah, it's just i i think i've as i've had more time and you know i'm just more into fitness and more into what i put in my body and just more mindful of how i spend time and what i do um i've found that cooking is a little bit therapeutic and even simple stuff. I, I, I'm not a chef by any stretch. I I don't think I'm talented. I'm, I'm kind of a, you know, a a basic sort of guy, but just kind of knowing where your food comes from and, you know, having a hand in making it, that's just, uh, that's just kind of been a more recent evolution for me. Yeah. Last five years or so. Yeah. My wife's really good at having a, like a flavor at the restaurant or something that we come home and she's like a chemist. And I'm like, how did you figure all that out without, did you Google that? Sometimes she does, but I'm like, so that, that to me, it's almost like somebody that can pick up a song by just listening to it. Um, Yeah. That's pretty cool. I I don't, I don't have that talent. I don't have that either. I, you know, give me a recipe and I'll do variances off of the written recipe in front of me. But other than that, and then I got my regular go-tos, you know, stuff like that, but that's sort of cool. So, um, so then, uh, you know, the agency world, which is very different today, man, like when, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Leo Burnett lost McDonald's and all that stuff went down last year. That that was a whole different thing. So did the did 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 you get bored with agency? Because you seem like me, like an adventure where it's like, you know what, you'll do this for a while, but bam, it's time for the next adventure. So was it just boredom, or was it just drawn to to moving to the next thing? Yeah, I think it was a bigger stage. Yeah, um, was kind of the thinking that. So, and again, I'm I'm not minimizing those jobs, and there are. Those were big of agency stages. job. I never did an agent. Yeah, I never worked at an agency. Those. And you can be on a huge stage, so I'm not. I'm not suggesting that that's not possible. What I'm saying for me, um, kind of being one part of a business, specifically the advertising part of the business, um, I wanted to learn what the rest of it looked like. And so, yeah. working at a huge company at the time, three hundred thousand people, always within the Fortune 100. I think during my five years there. Uh, Sears was going, Sears was my client. So I knew them from the other side of the desk. So um, for good or bad, that was a huge, that was 10 years of my life, either working with them as my client or working for them as a marketing VP for that division. So I learned a lot from them. And it was really cool because, you know, at this stage with all of the, the brands and companies, overseeing over a billion dollars in marketing spend, global companies, global uh, uh, brands, that kind of stuff. So you just, that's the stage that I was talking about. Um, but also just realizing that you look around an executive team and, uh, you know, I think we were a $3 billion division of the company and we were relatively small in the scheme of things there. But if you look around that, uh, that table, there's a lot of marketing just one element. And so for me, I got to learn, what's going on from a merchandising standpoint, from an op standpoint, from a finance standpoint, from an HR standpoint, just understanding the total picture and becoming a better student of business. Um, that was a, that was a big deal for me. And it definitely checked that box for me. 
Yeah, I, I can relate to that. I When I left Merrill Lynch and started my own company and I was a young, aggressive 23-year-old on a Wacker Drive in Chicago and you know, I was I was I was hot and heavy in the tech space, but I I missed some of the the accounting and the schooling and the business side of uh, the experience. So then I went to a CPA firm for three years that um, I feel like helped me get that. Um, of course, it was all Irish and it didn't do anything about slowing down on drinking. I love those guys, but it was <laughs> all Irish CPA firm. I was the only non-Irish guy. I think so. What, what could go wrong? Yeah, right. I was like, what? I got. I wanted to learn business, and you guys are drinking at two in the afternoon. <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> uh, so, but I'm easily corruptible. I'm just going to throw that out there. So those are good the, to know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, um, so with that, then uh, Sears, and then so how do you get? You know, in, how do you get to the second city chapter? You know, because that's a- well, there was a short chapter in between. So you may remember uh, 1999, first dot com boom, uh, and subsequent bust. Um, but you remember the language that people like us were using back then. Companies like Sears were regarded as the old economy, and you needed to get into the new economy with the you know, the emergence and the ascendance of Silicon Valley. It's like, hey, man, that's where the action is. What are you doing in this old guard world? Find a way to get into the new uh, new guard. And it was Y2K, so everybody was, the world was either going to end or change. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and I'm going to be totally honest with you. I took a job that I probably should not have taken. Uh, I was a VP of marketing for the consumer group of 3Com, which had a Chicago operation out in Rolling Meadows. And, you know, at the time they were trying to create a, a, a consumer group, basically their legacy business was um, enterprise, um, you know, infrastructure, uh, routers and switches and uh, uh, land telephony, telephony and all that stuff. Um, I'm not an expert in that. I have zero intrinsic interest in technology, but they thought that at the time they wanted to create a consumer group and that I was a good interpreter or a translator. And I do think that's a good skill of mine to be able to understand I was the target audience. And at the time, uh, it made sense on paper to find someone who could help you explain all of this stuff and not get caught in the techno babble, but to try to create language that would be appealing to the consumer if you're trying to create a consumer business. And it was a good idea, but then the world changed. Uh, Again, there was massive uh, cratering of the whole sector, you might remember that. And it taught me something, uh, you know, that for me, as much as it appealed to me on paper, I never felt that gut level pull of it wasn't really part of who I was. I I had because I didn't have a lot of intrinsic interest in tech. um, It was I always felt like I was wearing clothes that didn't fit. And so in in fairness to them, too, I'm not sure that I was the best operating best person for that role at that time either. So it's not just a one-way street. I'm not blaming them. It was a choice I made, but I made a decision at that point that I would never take a job that where I didn't have any intrinsic interest and where I didn't think yeah. I could connect kind of at a gut level or at a, at a, at a soul level. And um, I had more options and I just, I chose one because if I'm being super blunt in 1999, we all thought we were going to go to Silicon Valley work for a couple of years and make a pile of money. Oh yeah. I got close. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of us did, um, which is interesting. It's, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> I was thinking too, is like, I've always been that 
risk taker, which drives my wife uh, crazy. So bless you, Holly, for hanging in there with me. Um, but uh, just always like I would walk into my big accounts and my big clients. And I think I was always scared to become the people. Sometimes I would go there and I'd be like, you know, nothing would move. I was in there to help things move and drive things. And it was like getting things done seemed like I was running in mud, you know, and, and I was for whatever reason, this, this higher energy needed to make things happen. So, so, you know, the Deloitte's and stuff would call me in because I could be like that Delta force that could just push something through that company or that organization in a mm -hmm. fast way. Um, but I think there's a there's a there's I mean there's a good place to be in that balance. But I applaud you for taking the 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 risk uh, of going into those scenarios and not being the outside guy, but the inside guy. How does that you know transition? Because I think right now a lot of people are thinking, you know, maybe the opposite. They're the inside person now. They're going to have to be an outside person. So can you speak a little bit about the transition for you? Yeah, I, I mean, that's I think that's a good way to think about it too. I, I have a high tolerance for risk, uh, you know, from a career standpoint, I think what I've had seven or eight jobs and I probably have left four, five or six of them without a job, you know, just, I've always banked on myself. I've always known, you know, and sometimes early in my career, I may, may have moved too quickly or moved for the wrong reasons and you learn as you go too. So I'm not saying that's the right way. I'm not, I'm not trying, trying to present it that way. What I'm saying is that for me, um, I've always been willing to bet on myself and find something that suited me more. And it kind of goes back to your first question about that first fork in the road and, and 17 years later, what you find, well, that first decision to go away from a creative Avenue, you know, I had a great career on paper through 10 years of ad agency stuff as blue chip companies. And then, you have a fantastic experience as a marketing VP and who's given a ton of responsibility at a young age. So I, I, I can't at all was great. So I'm not belittling any of those choices, but what I found was I was always more creative than the jobs I let myself take. And I was at a point where I said, what do I want to do now? Do I want to continue this corporate marketing track or do I want to throw myself into something um, where I can get back to who I am at, at my core? And um, I got lucky that there was an opportunity to do that with the second city in Chicago. And that was truly a happy accident. It was a, it was a situation where I was, uh, you know, two weeks before Christmas, nine 11 had happened a couple, what, three months before right. and it was a couple weeks before Christmas. And I was saying, I do I want to go in cause they had shuttered the uh, rolling meadows facility of three com. So I had, I had left the company at that time and saying, I don't feel like going in and looking for a job today. And I said, just go in spend two hours doing it, have a look. So I went in and did it. And when I did it, I came across this job posting for something called VP, the Bus VP business solutions, the second city, which was so bizarre and absurd a title for the second city. I had to look into it and uh, it ended up being a really amazing run. It was a job of a lifetime. And 14 years later, it ended up being that way, but only because I showed up that day and decided to, throw my hat in the ring for something that was again a sharp left turn um, from the path that I had been on. And so I think people, to your point, Dean, whether they decided to or not, are finding themselves facing sharp left turns today. Yeah. And that they can do it 
that we it's funny right now that we want more than ever to control things and at the same time that we want to control outcomes and control the arc of our career and all those sorts of things we also find how little or how limited our control is it's yeah. this really wild dynamic right that you feel like man i got to i got to get a handle on this thing and it defies all of it yeah, and for so, those of us that don't like that don't like that like to be in control, it's a little bit, <laughs> it's a little bit adventurous, uh, crazy, cool. And for those of you that are uh, listening in, uh, it's April first, not you know, not true April Fool's Day on this. We're not fooling you, but uh, it's the uh, during the coronavirus uh, segment of life. So we don't know what that <laughs> turn out to be. But when we say people are making a lot of left turns and right turns, uh, hopefully you're getting to the right place in that and hopefully we're inspiring you about hearing about Tom's turns around this as well. So you're you're in Second City and I, I was reflecting back because uh, I was at Merrill Lynch in 82 and I was hanging out uh, with my buddies and I started a company a couple years after that and I'm hanging out on Franklin and Wells and different areas in the city of those neighborhood bars and we're hanging out with Second City people, man. We're drinking at Corcoran's and all those places around there and bumping in the Belushi and Aykroyd and whoever is around and, and almost, you know, hanging out with Harry Carey on Division Street and not, make, not thinking twice about it in Chicago, you know, and, and just having a beer or a cocktail and going to shows. And and so, um, so, so what was that like for you? Because to me that, you know, now I walk in there since Jackson has been part of it and his friends and I'm just like looking on the wall and I, I get chills talking about it of looking at all the history and the memories and being part of that. And, and you sort of helped, uh, you know, evolve some of that, that new stuff of the education, right? Yeah. I mean, to me, as I, I describe it, it was a job of a lifetime. I, I'm so grateful. I nearly 14 years there started in, 2002, January of 2002, and with some hunches um, back then, um, I think the reason I won the beauty contest is because we thought we were going to make it an ad agency at the time ah. because I had I had that background right and yeah. and Second City obviously yeah. had all the talent and the writing capability and the production capability and that that was an interesting idea at the time um, because most of the business back then was uh, kind of corporate entertainment and event based business which was a good business but there were other things that they could do. And I guess that's 17 podcasts we could fill talking about that time. It was wonderful. It was um, challenging. It was, uh, you know, tremendous highs, some, some real setbacks. And what I'm so proud of of that time of not just for me, but for the whole, all the people that I worked with was, you know, how we just found a way we yes ended that business. Um, and for people who don't know what I just said there, yes. And is, um, the fundamental idea of improvisation where you affirm and build on ideas and actors use that idea on stage, but it's big, it's a bigger idea than just the stage. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a way you can approach life. And, and I think that company certainly during my run there was yes. And in action, it was, how do we, how do we build on what's there and create new stuff? And so there was a, just a whole crew of unbelievably talented executives there. And, and obviously people who were talented creative staff, who just helped us grow not only the work that we were doing in corporate, but the work that we were doing, um, you know, with, uh, with, uh, education and training and, uh, being an actor, uh, school, if you will. And, and obviously all the work on the stages some really phenomenal work that happened on the stages in Chicago and Toronto and in other places. Yeah, for sure. And, and, 
and soon to be, you know, back at it. So, uh, so did you ever take the stage? No, no. Uh, uh, and, and the world is better for it. Um, it's funny. I, I, it's, uh, people ask me that I, I've, I've taken classes. We've done some things on our own, uh, um, you know, within our group where we would um, not part of regular training center classes, but we take our own classes sometimes just to help us understand uh, what we were serving up a little bit better. And uh, I am not a good improviser, as it turns out. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm a really good editor and that is exactly the opposite of what you need to be, to be a good improviser. I'm, I like to write, I like to fiddle, I like to noodle, I like to perfect. And that is not really a good recipe for being a great improviser. Yeah. So then, so then when did the book yes and come about in all this? Was that during or after or? So Kelly Leonard, uh, who is uh, still at Second City, um, and for years when when Kelly and I worked together, he he was really overseeing all the artistic side of the of the company and the stages and whatnot, and I was kind of the guy overseeing the business side of things. Uh, we were this is probably twelve years, ten twelve years into our run, or my run, and he's been there over thirty, I think now. Um, said, there's a lot of people out there writing books about business or improv and business, and they weren't doing nearly what we were doing in the real world. And this is not to slight them in the least. I'm glad they wrote about it. But I said, we have permission to enter this conversation. Uh, You know, at the time we were doing four or 500 engagements a year and half of them with Fortune 1000 companies. We kind of knew what we were talking about. And yet we were we were so busy doing the work, we had never stopped to take a pause and and turned it into, you know, uh, to memorialize it in a book. Yeah. And so that's, that's when it came out. The book uh, came out just over five years ago. In fact, uh, February of 2015. Yeah, that's cool. Um, you know, and I think about today during this uh, coronavirus uh, episode that we're in uh, or chapter. Um, and I think about, you know, improv. Uh, I've always been one of those people that haven't been in, uh, you know, didn't go into acting or shows or continue on with uh, being um, a musician that sang because I could never remember the words or remember scripts. I, my weak side was memorization and things like mm. that. So so I always found myself being a good storyteller and outliner and things like that. So for me, at least, and maybe some of the people that that know that, is there a, is there a bridge of being a good storyteller versus being... Um, you know, an improviser, is that similar, you know, just so that people can get some context around that? I think it's, it's a little different in that. And again, I don't want to paint myself as, because I never was on the stage. So I don't want to come at it from that view, uh, kind of come at it from an outsider's view who work closely with all those people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's different because when you're a storyteller, it, it feels more like a solo act. Yeah. Um, yet um, that you, if you're a writer or uh, a stand-up that is fundamentally a solo act and you can find that. Whereas if you're an improviser, you're working within an ensemble. So no one person can control the outcome of where the story goes. Yeah. And to add intrigue to the whole thing, you're involving an audience and you don't know where their suggestions are going to take you to. And that's the magic of it. So I think you find story very differently. I always draw that distinction to people and talk about for all the talk about storytelling and I'm, and I'm glad for it as an alternative to just being, you know, data wonks and just talking numbers in business, just actually humanize things and find narratives. Um, 
But I think sometimes people place more emphasis on the telling than the finding. And I wish people would spend more time finding what's true, finding what's real in their organization, with their team, whatever it is, before worrying about the trappings of how they frame it in a story. So I, I do think improvisers find story. I do think shows develop angles and themes and narratives. It's just that not one person does not drive that. It's just not possible. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. So when we think about uh, the Corona chapter and um, people having to take uh, lefts or rights, depending on where they're at, you know, at their life, for their job, their world, um, what can we learn from from improv? Since you know, I know you weren't an improviser, but you did, you know, write that book, and and you were around it for so long. Are there some lessons that maybe you can share with us, uh, even from a leadership standpoint of uh, maybe things we can learn from, you know, the world of improv, uh, the Yes And book that um, might help us today. Yeah, uh, there's a ton of them. And the idea that I do think that we live in a semi-scripted world, maybe maybe unscripted. And we're, boy, are we feeling that right now, that whatever the plan you have, whatever the goals you have, whatever, um, you know, whatever you think is going to happen, the world has a way of throwing curveballs. And when it throws curveballs in the one we're dealing with now is the biggest one I've ever experienced in my lifetime. It just changes things fundamentally. And so to be nimble, to be adaptive, to be able to create something out of nothing, to be able to create new alliances and coalitions and teams to solve problems, to be able to forge trust on dispersed teams, all those things were things that we were doing when I was at Second City and, and, and they, do, they do today. Um, and that's a big part of it is I think leadership is an act of improvisation because it's not just about, um, it, it's about dialogues versus monologues. It's about being able to act in the face of imperfect information because um, we, we don't get certainty all the time. As much as we'd like to know, and you, you look at how I get a kick out of watching how Wall Street works, um, and you were in that world, right? Yeah. Um, that, you know, analysts and wanting to, you need the guidance for the back half of the year and everyone wants to know it's around the next 16 corners. Yet most of business, we don't, that's a nice idea, but you have to be comfortable acting without knowing what's around the next corner sometimes. And we are absolutely in that situation today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think about that and, you know, it's, it's like uh, almost like, um, you know, obviously you can't turn on, uh, I'm an, I'm an ESPN junkie and there's all reruns and movies on, but there's no, nothing live unless there's no audience on. And so, uh, so as I think about that, all the stuff on TV, if it's not a rerun, a show, some sort of binge watching, it's, it's the news that's just flooding in. And then when you go to social media, unfortunately, you can't get away from it. And then you open your inbox and there's, 700 people that you don't know telling you what they're doing about it. So, um, you know, can, and, and, Dean, I hate to, not to interrupt you. Can I just offer a reflection on ESPN? You said something and it, it jogged my brain and I yeah, just wanted to it. say this, you know, I was watching all those old bulls games too, and all yeah. those old Cubs games too. And, yeah. and just like you, and one of the takeaways I had from it is I'm looking at people who are no longer with us. Yeah. There are a lot of reporters from the sidelines, coaches, um, even players. And that kind of rocked me a little bit in the sense that, wow, this is 1996 or whatever the year was, is some of those Bulls championship runs. And it's like, you're looking at these people who are no longer with us. And that did two things to me. On the one hand, it made it 
it just gave me some perspective of like, you know, there is a great equalizer out there and we get so caught up in, you know, our struggles in our career and, and all the other stuff. And you realize we're here for a time. And those people, many of those people were king of the world in their world. And, you know, you just realize how temporal it is, how, how fragile it is and how, how that, how that can change so quickly. And so that, that might seem to be kind of a pointing, almost a downer side of it. And I didn't mean to be that way, but the uplifting side of it to me is it also helps me put in perspective the stuff we're dealing with today. Yeah. We will get, we will get past this, this thing that is so momentous and so epic and it, it's bigger than most. Absolutely. But it's kind of the story of our country too. And, and story of the world and, and humanity is, you know, we move forward. And so I didn't mean to take that track, but when, when you mentioned ESPN is I had that reflection watching some of those old games. Yeah, ditto. I'm I'm with there with you. Um, and I was trying to think, does, is there any, uh, maybe it's more of your leadership advice than improv, but is there anything uh, that you can speak to about all these distractions and how we can maybe make every day great one bite at a time or whatever it is, you know what I mean? So how do you view that? Yeah, I, I try, I try, I've, uh, you know, and there's a few things, that I, you know, you can draw from the mindfulness world. I've been doing a lot of that yeah. thinking and, 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 and work in the last five years or so about trying to be present, trying to be in the moment, yeah. um, trying not to let things get too far ahead of you and, and, and just project too much into the future or to live too much in the past about what's been lost because in people we're going through, there are a lot of people who are experiencing profound loss right now. Could be a company that they spent 20 years building, whatever that's real. And, and I'm not here to say what the appropriate length of time is. I'm just saying I, I try to stay more present, stay more in the moment. Um, there's also a great improv axiom since we were talking about that. Um, bring a brick, not a cathedral. And um, bring a bring a brick, not a cathedral. Um, and and that that's about the idea. There is when actors are improvising on stage, it's it's up to each of them only to add the next logical thing or the next thing that comes to their mind, brick one brick at a time. When actors try to drive an entire scene against a predisposed or a preconceived outcome, and they haven't, they know where it's going to go, and they bring the whole cathedral, it's really not interesting to watch or listen to. And so the idea in, in this time is when everything has been uh, thrown uh, topsy-turvy, you want to come up with that one solution. You want that silver bullet that's going to make it all right again. Yeah. And I think we have to, it's more realistic to say, what's the next step I can take? What's the next move I can make one brick at a time? And that's going to get us back to whole. But if we set ourselves up with the expectation that, hey, tomorrow I'm, I've got, I'm, I'm repositioning my business because we're all virtual now and we will be X. It, that's, that's a hard nut to crack. And I think there are a lot of people who feel like, man, I got to make this fix happen tomorrow, as opposed to what's the next logical move I can make. And to give yourself room to make a series of steps, lay down a series of bricks before you get somewhere. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's that's good advice uh, for sure. So thank you for that. Um, one of the things you and I had a discussion on uh, previously, uh, we do a lot of uh, thought leadership and digital thought leadership, and you had an interesting take on that. Is uh, is, uh, is can you maybe uh, take us through that or your viewpoint of thought leadership? Because I thought that was pretty profound. 
Yeah, I, I'm spending a lot of time on LinkedIn these days because there's just more time available to see. You look at things, and um, you know, I'm late to that party. Uh, I and I think it's I'm trying to um, figure out the right way to show up and offer stuff that's useful in that forum. And I think everyone is, and there's not again any one right way to do it. But I see people talking a lot about, I'm going to be a thought leader as if it's something you can declare. And then I'm just going to do these three things. And now I'm a thought leader. And the world tells you when you're a thought leader, you don't tell it when you're a thought leader. And I, I would love to see people adopt more of a point of view of, can you be a thought contributor and be a little bit more modest in what you think your impact is. And Again, not for everybody. That's my wiring. That's the way I see things. And so all I'm trying to do is make little contributions. And if they add up to something more than that, well, then I guess someone down the road will tell me that. But for the time being, it's enough. Um, don't worry about being a thought leader. It sort of goes back to the last point. Don't worry about resurrecting your entire business tomorrow. Make contributions and 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 be other directed. So it's not about... Um, the other one is personal branding um, that I understand the importance of it, but I think it's been corrupted. I think people, what it, too often what it's become is I'm going to represent myself in a way that's not really true to who I am, but because I think this will make me more attractive to others professionally. And I think it can be a really corrupting thing. So those are all good ideas. Being a thought leader is great having a strong personal brand is great as long as it's grounded in who you really are. And it's not something that you're pretending to be. Yeah. It's funny. I did a, I did a, um, a workshop um, 10 years ago on the power of authenticity because it was driving me nuts that I would, um, I would uh, see people on social media and I still do. And then I'd go to, uh, you know, grab coffee with them or meet them in a coffee shop and I've got their, you know, LinkedIn profile up and I'm looking for them and they've been in the coffee shop for half an hour. And because the, the picture is so dated, they're either trying to be somebody they were or, and, and preserve that, you know, like Disney on ice. I meant Walt Disney, uh, but, you know, preserve themselves in that ice, you know, component or they're, like you said, they're over inflating, over instating who they are rather mm-hmm. than just, telling the story of who they are and who they become. That's, that's where we try to get to the essence on, on the show here. But that, that part was always driving me nuts. And I'm like, there's power in being authentic. Let's, let's be, let's go there. Totally agree. And, and, and being, you know, showing a little vulnerability in, in what you don't have, because most of us have enough. Most of us have enough to make enough money to get on down the road. You don't have, we don't have to have it all. We don't have to be the perfect package because everyone that I've met who claims to be the perfect package is not. Um, <laughs> and we're going to find out anyway. <laughs> we're going to find out anyway. So <laughs> you, you've got enough. You've got enough to do what you need to do professionally. And you're better off being honest about that and playing to those strengths. It doesn't mean you don't put your best foot forward. Right. We all do that. Of course we do. You know, I took a shower today. Um, <laughs> you promised. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's, it's it's enough. And, and I think because everyone re everyone knows when you're not doing that and it's just really off putting, at least to me, when I see this stuff and the humble bragging and all the other stuff you see in, in, in these social business channels, it's like, come on guys, what are we doing? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, when, uh, business coaching first got hot, I, I went and got the, um, you know, a certification and learned about it. Cause I was always a consultant more than a, 
a coach and I, I always love sports and I love coaching in sports. Um, although don't ask Jackson that I think I was a <laughs> father coach so that I was bad at, I'll admit that, uh, for the most part. Um, so, uh, so anyway, when, when I, I got to be more of a coach, it helped me with, uh, listening and being and understanding and caring and nurturing and, and a lot of cool other parts. And so one thing I've always held on to is I encourage anybody that learns or is listening right now is, is like, make sure, you know, we always tell people, teach someone today, like whatever you learned. And to me, that's the essence of thought leadership is that you're passing it on. You're taking the part of you that is growing and developing and learning and making mistakes and share it with people that matter in your life that you care about, or maybe even a bigger audience. What's your take on that? I think it's true. Um, and, and uh, now that I've moved into this, uh, my own business where coaching is an aspect of it with shine advisors, um, I, I find, you know, I'm, I'm not a traditional coach. I, we've talked through my background. I didn't come up as a coach. I came up, doing different jobs. And more recently, um, I've kind of taken this tack because I feel like I have some things that I've learned along the way that I want to want to give back. And, and in particular, a kind of leadership that I want to advocate for. That's why I built the business that I built. But I do think it's about, um, there's a lot of different kinds of coaches. For me, there was a certain kind of leadership I wanted to support. There's a certain kind of leader that I wanted to get behind. And in that case, it was, I, I defined it originally as kind of the quiet, introverted, shy leader, because in my experience, I had a, I had a number of great leaders who were big, bold, and gregarious, but I also had some great leaders in my career who were not that, who were the opposite of that. And I wanted, I don't think they get their, their due as much as they should in business. And so I wanted to, to support them. And I also think that I have more of those tendencies than not myself. So there's a little bit of personal desire to, to support that kind of person who's autobiographical. and and. I felt like there was so much pressure for us to be, to behave like the other when that was the most depleting thing that I ever did is when I had to pretend to be something that I wasn't, that always just completely undermined and wrecked me. And so um, I'd rather have people be original than to be imitating and show, and my whole business now is around helping them uh, understand what their preferences are, understand what their strengths are and show them that they have a really big playbook to work with to showcase those things in their written interpersonal presentational communication to show those things instead of burying those and doing something different. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, um, so with, uh, you know, with that being said, uh, you know, where do you see, um, you know, where do you see yourself taking uh, what you're building now and, and what's, um, where, where do you see yourself heading? Is this impact of coronavirus affecting that at all? Or are you just going to keep marching with your current plan? Yeah, I think so. I'm two years into it. This is my third year. You spent the first year kind of figuring out what it was. Do I even like it? Right. You <laughs> right. create a business. Am I any good at it? And what I find, love what you do, right? <laughs> that's right. I mean, you know, you, we talked about this, you know, in the lead up to this, this conversation today, you, you've built businesses. It's, it's definitely not always what you think it is. So I had to do it before I knew I was, I was going to like doing it. And so, yeah, I know I like doing it based on how things have gone. I think I, I've got some aptitude for it. And what I really love that I never knew about myself is I love the one-on-one work. 
Um, I always want that to be a part of what I do. And I find it really gratifying to help people see different sides of themselves and, and kind of unlock things that they didn't know, know existed. So that's super gratifying. Um, but just naturally, when I work with leaders, because often their communication is the organization's communication, I'm finding myself increasingly pulled into working with teams and to working into creating content for those leaders around their messaging. So it's not just helping them um, uh, understand how they can message better or understand how they can improve executive presence or whatever it is. Sometimes it's actually creating content with a network of content partners that I have. So I think it's going to continue to go in that direction. Um, and it's interesting. I'd say that maybe 60% of my clients I would call quiet or introverted. I think you know almost as many are not that. And more and more, I don't think that's the fundamental distinction because I think we're situationally one thing or another. I think some days I'm very extroverted and some days I'm not. It's all circumstantial for me. And I think a lot of my clients are that way too. So that can be too easy a definition. So I think where I'm going to go is it'll be more work with teams. I think it'll be more work creating content and more work delivering content this way as we're doing here because it allows for that. Um, uh, mediated by you know Zoom or whatever it else, whatever else it is, and I think it'll be talking to people who aren't necessarily defining themselves on an introversion extroversion. I said that very well, introversion <laughs> extroversion continuum, but uh, kind of like, are you more of an other directed communicator? Because I think. The world goes to the bridge builders. The world goes to the translators. The world goes to the people who uh, are other directed and generous communicators. You can be a generous communicator, whether you're quiet or whether you're big, bold, and gregarious. And you can be the opposite of that. So I think for me, the fundamental thing is around generosity and communication is around other directedness and communication and closing the distance between people and ideas. That sounds kind of wild and philosophical, but I, I think about, if you think, what is the purpose of communication? It's to reduce the distance between people and ideas. And if you think about how business communication works, I think too often business communication increases the distance between people and ideas. It doesn't shorten anything. It makes it harder. And so that's, that's a drum I've been banging. Oh, how about that nice tie back to the drumming thing? Yeah, right. That's a, <laughs> that's a drum I've been banging for 35 years. So I, I suspect I'll keep doing it. Once a drummer, always a drummer. See, geez, I didn't even <laughs> see that one coming. Uh, one thing is to, and when you were talking about that, I was, uh, I was smiling because I, I forgot about your two months uh, into vegetarianism, right? So, and and I was sorry, a, it's over. I, is it over? <laughs> yeah, I got coroned. I got coroned out of that. Coroned. Well, I was laughing. I have something for you because uh, you were talking about being flexible and whatnot. But I, um, I was at a thing with uh, Rick, a Rick Bayless event last year. And, and they were just like, you know, talking about these new places that he has, these incubators, which are super cool. And then they go, well, in today's world, they go, you know, because my daughter is gluten-free and, and I'm gluten-free with her and I feel better because of that. And uh, Jackson and Holly are a dairy uh, lactose intolerant, but there's all these different dietary things. Mm -hmm. And he goes, the most popular one today, and I'm like leaning in, he goes, is being a flexitarian. And I go, and, he, and I go, what's that? And he goes, well, one week, you know, you lay off of fried foods and maybe this month you don't do dairy. And I go, that's me. I go, they finally have something for who I, because I've tried being a, a vegetarian or whatever it is with the fish, without the fish, the whole thing. I've tried it like different things. 
And I was laughing and I go, oh my God, that's brilliant. A flexitarian. So those of you out there, so Tom, you might just be a flexitarian. I might be. It's funny. I'm I'm working on updating my LinkedIn profile right now and figuring out what that tagline is. I think I'll just go with that. (laughs) Flexitarian. Flexitarian thought leader. (laughs) Recently discovered content creator. (laughs) That's so funny. That's a great, very apt. I, I, I think I'm, sounds right for me too. No, I just got bored because I, I didn't have enough recipes. I ran out of recipes. So I said, okay, I've, that hamburger looks pretty good. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> oh, well, so uh, before we uh, wrap things up, any uh, people that you want to give a shout out to that maybe along the way, you know, it could be from a long time ago or current that just, you know, is uh, maybe who you've become. Wow, that's a that's a great one, and I it's always I will miss a few. Um, yes, we all do, yeah, we all do. So I will apologize in advance for the people who I don't say up front. Um, uh, starting with my uh, Jim Banco. Jim was the guy who hired me in the sheet metal shop when I was fourteen, um, and he recently passed away, and uh, a family friend for a lifetime, and he gave me gave me the first real job, you know, and so always grateful for that. Um, uh, I knew some people along the way, uh, uh, a woman named, uh, Paula Sirios, uh, Paul and I worked together at Ogilvy, but she was a friend of mine in college. And she used to tell me like, um, uh, <laughs> all the, cause I was, you know, I was a meathead. I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't know any, I was a blue collar kid. I didn't have any manners. I didn't know anything, but she would right. always give me a little coach, a little side coaching, um, as I got into the professional world that, yeah. I'm sure for her it was kind of silly, but for me, it was actually stuff that stuck. So I'm going to thank her right now for that. Showing me what fork to eat. It's uh, so she's, uh, she's great. Uh, Just friends, uh, uh, you know, more recently in my my whole crew at second city, um, uh, that team that, that I worked with uh, uh, Steve Johnston, Andrew Alexander, Kelly Leonard, uh, uh, Bryn Humphreys, uh, at the time she's now married, she's Bryn Hovde, um, just many, many others and all the creative staff there. My God, they were so, uh, they made me look good at every turn and I'm, I'm grateful for all that I learned from them. Um, and just all the bosses along the way, I, I learned a lot from my bosses. I had really good bosses and I, in the ad agency days, I don't know how much training they're doing, but I got really, really good training from my bosses on how to write. And I think it's an under appreciated skill. If you're a good writer, you're probably a good thinker and a clear thinker. And uh, especially at Ogilvy, they prized writing more than anything. Joel Rafelson and, uh, was, was a guy who was a legend at Ogilvy and um, he, he, he was fantastic. He wrote a book on writing that works and I still refer to it today. So my God, uh, Dean, I could go on and on, but those are yeah. in the moment. Those are just names that come to mind and I've missed some, yeah. but yeah, and when we post this out, you can uh, you can add to it, you know. So Thank you. Know, yeah, because that that always happens. It's like, uh, you know, it's like. <laughs> yeah, and then you feel like a bum, and all of a sudden you're like, uh, <laughs> as your family's yeah. sitting down there, and you forget about it. So yeah, it's just happening. Totally. It happens all the time. Let's just get rid of this entire segment. Yeah. I don't want to thank anyone. Okay, we'll chop that. So, <laughs> but anyway, uh, that's the power of authenticity, right? We just <laughs> we're wrong and uh, we shift back and forth. But um, so, with that being said, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way or website? Where should they go? Yeah, uh, uh, shineadvisors.com. S H Y N E. I guess we'll put it in the notes, right? Um, 
uh, below. Uh, shineadvisors.com is, is my website. Um, like every website in the world, it is currently being updated. Um, there's, there's new stuff happening around us necessitating that. Um, but you can get a basic idea of the work that I do and the things I believe there. And also, um, uh, you can check me out uh, on my LinkedIn profile too, because I'm publishing more and doing more there. And you can learn a little bit more about my work there. Awesome. Well, listen, it's been a delight having you. And uh, every time we talk, I learn something new, uh, not just about you, but for myself. So I appreciate that. And uh, and like we always say, uh, you know, whatever you picked up for yourself out of this episode with Tom, make sure you share that with somebody today. That's important as a thought leader for you to do that and to, to you know, mention that, you know, through this podcast, you met Tom, you got some, maybe some great ideas and who knows, maybe something life-changing from this point forward. Uh, so just make sure you do that. Give Tom a, a shout out in the show, a shout out on, uh, on the web, if you could, on social. And then um, Tom, we'll look forward to interview you again in your next chapter down the road. I really appreciate it, Dean. Thanks so much. You got it. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks again, Tom. Thank you for listening to the Influence Factory podcast. We welcome feedback and suggestions. You can provide these by visiting our website at www.myinfluencefactory.com. And if you are interested in Social Jack's 90 Days to Influence program, you can simply go to 90daystobusinessinfluence.com and simply ask for the next steps. We invite you to download episodes on your favorite channel, YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and who knows where else in the future. We will also provide occasional on-location live streams with special guests that we will announce in our community Facebook group, Business Influencer Alliance, as well as on all Social Jack channels. Our mission is to help you build your digital business influence, with this podcast, as well as inspire, educate, and entertain those who are hungry to collaborate in a cool place with cool business professionals just like you.